Great. Well, isn't it good to be in God's presence? Two of you think it is. Excellent. That's good. Because we're going to carry on in God's presence uh, as we look at his word. And uh, so today is the start of our summer preaching series, where for six weeks we're going to be looking at the the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be good for us to to spend a period of time just going through a whole book in a short space of time and kind of picking out some of the lessons for it. Uh, And so today, I'll be honest with you, um, I've kind of got two weeks worth of sermons, which I'm going to try and do before the end, because ideally what I'd like to do is an introduction to the letter, and then I'd like to preach on chapter one. Um, And today I'm going to try and do both. So... Bear with me, um, but hopefully uh, we'll get some stuff out of it. So 1 Thessalonians, just as a, by way of background, um, is one of Paul's earliest letters, written in about AD 50, and, um, and it's one of his most autobiographical. So I don't know whether you've, uh, you've checked Facebook and done the suggestion of uh, reading through uh, 1 Thessalonians, but um, it's about his ministry in Thessalonica. And that will come out over the course of these next few weeks. But I think because he's writing to this small church in a city, um, that kind of sounds a bit like us. We are a small church in a city, and therefore we've got some stuff to learn from this. So I'm excited about what God has got for us. But as we look at this chapter, a number of times I will probably say, and this will come up again later, And this will come up again later, because like any good writer, he sets up his themes at the start and then he unpicks them as the letter unfolds. So there'll be a bit of that going on. But the key point I want to do today is to introduce this church, for us to get a feel for this church in Thessalonica and also the gospel that was so influential in shaping this church. So we're going to look at the gospel the good news of Jesus, the fact that it is powerful and it is effective, that it changes lives, that it transforms communities, that it establishes churches. That's what the gospel does. And we're going to look, therefore, at how the gospel arrived in Thessalonica, the effect that it had on the people and the kind of central core message of the gospel. So uh, there should be a map coming up now. Um, There's a Thessalonica was a leading city, the capital city, in fact, of Macedonia. And uh, that's now in what we know as Greece. And it was established in about 316 BC. So it had been around for a few hundred years before Paul arrived there. And Cassander, a general, kind of gathered together 26 different villages and said, now we're going to make a town out of you. And it's a great location, a deep natural harbour that opens up into the Aegean, Um, protected because of the geography of it from the southwesterly winds which would come, protected to the north by mountains, so protected from those kind of north European winds that would sweep across the continent. But because it's near mountains, there's a plentiful supply of forests and therefore wood for building houses. So you're able to establish something. Um, Also, a river kind of drops down into it, empties into the Aegean, and that river links up with the Danube that most magnificent of of European rivers. And politically, it was a free city, was made a free city by Rome, basically because of the loyalty that the city had shown to a Roman emperor at some point. And that meant they were exempt from taxes, 
They were exempt from Roman troops being stationed there. Um, and it meant that they were allowed to govern according to their local customs and decision-making and priorities. A kind of, you know, a, a local area. You know, they might have had a, a mayor, for example, of the greater West Midlands area to bring it up into the current day. That type of thing. It was a busy city. A port town and a busy city with people passing through. There was a, an important road which ran along, and we'll talk more about that later, called the Ignatian Way. And it ran right across this region. So there were loads of trade, loads of ideas, loads of influence coming into this kind of melting pot of Thessalonica. And it's into that setting that Paul arrives to preach the gospel And it's into that setting that he then writes his letter. So just before we get into the story, I want to pray. Father God, we we love your word. We love the fact that there is such richness, such, uh, such depth in it. And that as we explore it, so it kind of unfolds more and more and more. And we pray that would happen for us this morning. That as we open up this magnificent letter... You would speak into our hearts. You would show us and instruct us what this means for us as a people. And Father, we pray that this summer would be a time of richness, of just soaking in the truths of 1 Thessalonians. Amen. So the first thing then is the arrival of the gospel. And um, so I'm going to start with the story. And while I'm telling this, you might want to turn to Acts chapter 17 in your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles with you. Paul launches out on his secondary, second missionary journey with his colleague Silas, or Silvanus. And uh, they travel and they start to go through modern-day Turkey. And uh, they get to a point where they want to go one way, and the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go that way. So he says, okay, I'll try and go this way. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go that way either. And so then he's uh, asleep one night, or... Maybe he's awake. I think it might be a vision, actually. Um, And he he sees a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And uh, and so he he gets up and he goes, that's it then. We've got to head to Macedonia instead of, so that's in Greece rather than Turkey. So off off he trots with Silas and they get to Philippi. And a load of stuff happens in Philippi, including a prison, an earthquake and a jailer. But you can read about that in your own time. And it's at that point that we pick up the story. So chapter 17 of Acts, verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have upset the world. 
and have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now that's significant because, remember, Thessalonica is a free city that is free because it was loyal to Rome and only retains its freedom if it remains loyal to Rome. So the fact that there's this other king that might come into town and be followed after, that's going to be a threat to their kind of current status. So they're not happy. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they received a pledge or kind of posted bail from Jason and the others, they released them. So that's basically it. That's what we know about Paul's visit to Thessalonica in terms of the Acts narrative. And what we see is that it was not an untroubled visit. There was a mob, for example. I mean, you know, it's not kind of just a walk in the park. Not just a nice little preaching engagement at the local synagogue. This is trouble. And so they have to flee. Paul and Silas flee the city probably leave Timothy behind and he joins them later. But they flee to Berea, then on to Athens, and then finally to Corinth. And it's in Corinth where Paul is for about 18 months. And it's from there that he writes the letter to the Thessalonians. And so the question that was there in the break, for those of you who were sat here pondering, was about how long would you expect if you visited a new city with no established church, how long would you expect it before there was a church there? Paul, three Sabbaths, three weeks, reasoning in the synagogue, and then he hung around a bit, speaking to some Greeks and beginning to teach them, and then he's hounded out of town. Somewhere between three months, three weeks and a few months. That's how long he got. And when he writes to them, just a few months later, he writes to the church of the Thessalonians. There's a church there. Church there. I just find that incredible. Incredible that in that short space of time, the work of God can transform somewhere. And the work wasn't finished. You know, this wasn't kind of a totally set up, everything's hunky-dory church. That's why we've got the letter. And if you read the letter, there's some big issues that they don't understand. And that's why he writes it, because he's kind of torn away from them too quickly. He can't put in place all the foundations that they need. But that doesn't take away the fact that there's a church there. That's been established. The gospel has arrived and God has been at work and the church has been established. So in the light of that, let's read the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing brothers loved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, 
just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, we saw that, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. You can see why there's a lot in there to get through, but we'll do it. The arrival of the gospel then in Thessalonica. I think, or I've been thinking this week, it's a lot like my snack-sized cucumbers. So there's a picture of the first one, which was picked the other day. It's about nine centimetres long, um, and uh, I'm quite proud of them. Although I'd prefer chocolate digestive as a snack rather than a cucumber, but nonetheless. um, (laughs) That's true. But basically, I got these plants from the shop, and I planted them, and then I watered them. I put them outside in what I thought would be a decent spot, and... And that happens. I mean, I just find that amazing. And really, it's not very much to do with me at all. Apart from that I planted them, and I watered them, and then a bit later on I picked them. It. Let's let's, let's not over-egg this, okay? Um, I'll give you an update next week. Um, And what we see with Paul's ministry in Thessalonica is that he plants He sows the seed. He brings the word. I don't know whether you noticed it, but in that Acts account, in Acts 17, it says that he went with them. uh, So three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer. And then it says, and some of them were persuaded. Paul's job when he went in there was to bring the word the word of the gospel, and he explained it, he reasoned with them, he argued with them, he persuaded them, and he laid out the evidence that this Jesus is risen from the dead. That's what Paul did. That's like me planting my plants. They're there. The seed is there. And then he waters it. We read in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you, in our prayers. He pours his prayers on the seed that has been planted. He plants the seed, he sows the word, and he prays, and he waters the seed which has been sown. But God gives the growth. God gives the growth. Because Paul can't do that. And like my cucumbers, I can't do anything about making them grow. Maybe I could, you know, buy a bit of food or I don't know. There's probably all sorts of clever gardener things I could do with it. But actually, I can't do anything to make that plant produce fruit. 
All I can do is water it. And maybe pray if I'm desperate, but water it. And it's exactly like that with the gospel. Paul couldn't force them to become Christians. He may persuade, he may argue, he may lay out the evidence, but he cannot force them to become Christians. It is God who does that. And what we read in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1 is, our gospel did not come to you in word only. Sometimes I think we're too quick to dismiss the in word. I didn't come in word only. No, the word was important. That's what Luke emphasises, the reasoning, explaining and giving evidence. But it's not that only. How else does it come? It comes in power. Signs and wonders. The power of a life well lived in the presence of opposition. It comes with power. It comes in the Holy Spirit. It's no good being able to teach if it's not anointed by the Spirit. It's no no good being able to lay out all the evidence before a jury if it's not anointed by the Holy Spirit. The truth has to be jumped on the back of, if you like, taken up with the Holy Spirit. And that's what has the impact. Why? Because that brings full conviction. Conviction of sin. Conviction of the truth of it. Conviction of the need to respond. And so this gospel comes not in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And we must be a people who, when we're proclaiming the great truths of God, and we need to do that, and we need to do it well. But we also want God to invade in power, in the Holy Spirit and with conviction. That's the only way that this fruit can grow. And when Paul left, the job wasn't done. You read chapter two, you read chapter three of one Thessalonians. You'll see that he was worried about what had happened to these Thessalonian disciples. He wasn't convinced that their roots went deep enough. He wasn't convinced yet that there was something that was strongly and firmly established. But then he realized, actually, this was the work of God. And that's what had established the church. So the first thing is the arrival of the gospel. The second thing is the evidence of the gospel in the believers' lives. Now, bearing in mind that Paul wrote this from Corinth just a few months later, (laughs) I find the descriptions that he writes of the church absolutely mind-blowing. And he does it in a number of different ways. So firstly, he describes their identity. The opening line, to the church of the Thessalonians. I love that. This gathered people of God in this particular location. And this is where we could easily insert some words for us. The church of Jubilee in Solihull. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The next bit of the statement doesn't change. That's why we can change the first bit. This applies to all of us. Every church, in every place, everywhere. They're a church because they're tied up, knotted into, if you like, knitted into, incorporated into the body of Christ in God the Father. That's what makes them a church. They're joined to Christ and they cannot be separated from that. And for Paul, that's a certainty. So for him, no kind of 25-year church planting uh, strategy that eventually means that we can transition from being a church plant to a church. 
No, for him, he preaches the gospel, it takes root, lives are transformed, and a church is there. A church is there. But there's more than that. Not just are they identified as a church, but they're identified as brothers. Verse 4. Knowing brothers. Now the commentators are totally united on this. And that's surprising if you read a variety of commentators. The word brothers really it would be better translated siblings. Brothers and sisters. It's just clunky, so we leave it with brothers. But it's better siblings. And if we think about the account in Acts again, so he went to the synagogue and he preached to the Jews and then he went and preached to the number of leading Greeks. Sorry, God-fearing Greeks. And then a number of leading women. So right at the very start of the church, you've got a mix of Jews and Greeks, male and female. So he writes, brothers and sisters, loved by God. (laughs) Do you know that? I mean, really know it. We say it a lot. We sing it a lot. We probably comment to each other about it a lot. But do you know it? Do you know it? Brothers and sisters loved by God. Dare I say that's the most incredible thing you will hear today. That you are loved by God. Loved by God. Loved by the Father. Why? Knowing, brothers loved by God, his choice of you. (laughs) Picked out. Picked out of the crowd. And loved by the Father. That's what it means. He chose you. Picked you out. Chose that his, his truth would take root in your hearts. That you'd be incorporated into this family of Christ. So they're a church. They're known by God. They're loved by God. They're chosen by God and established there in Thessalonica. And Paul packs the start of this letter to them with these truths so that they remember who they were. Sorry, who they are. (laughs) But secondly, Paul describes their fruitful lives. And I don't know whether you noticed this amazing triad which appears throughout the New Testament, this faith, love and hope. In verse 3, so constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labour of love and your steadfastness of hope. Faith, love and hope. So frequently they arrive together, in the, particularly in the New Testament epistles. But there's a few, gonna, a few instances going to appear on the screen now. So we could have the first one up. This is probably the most famous. And now these three remain. Faith, hope and love. The greatest of these is love. So yeah, okay, good, Simon, you've got another verse to back up your, your idea that this happens more than once. But there's another one. Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Because if we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel. Notice the gospel features again there. 
this faith, hope and love. I've got another one. So this is Hebrews. I've not spotted this one before because my attention often when reading this passage has been on other things. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Faith, hope and love. Faith, hope and love. And when Paul writes about these three here, and there are many other examples as well. I'll send a few round to your life group leaders so you can do a little study on it. But when Paul writes about it, he talks about their work of faith and their labour of love and their steadfastness of hope. Remember, these are baby Christians. Just a few months in to their walks with Jesus. And he talks about their work of faith, labour of love, steadfastness of hope. You see that that faith is not just a static thing. Yes, I believe. Now I sit on my bottom. It's not that. Now I believe. So I go and do some work for Jesus. Not to earn me anything, but because that's the natural outworking of our faith, of our relationship with God. If you've got something good that you know about, you're going to go and do something about it. And so he talks about their work of faith. He talks about their labour of love. If you genuinely have the love of God in your hearts, Paul says in Romans that that kind of spills out. It's an overflow. And so again, you will labour for the advance of the kingdom. We love because he first loved us. That's the way things work. And perseverance or steadfastness of hope. This is what causes us to stick at it when it's tough. That's what hope is. It's not just this kind of, I hope it will happen, this kind of ethereal maybe one day. But this actually is something which is concrete, which can almost be grabbed. And because of that, we persevere in order to receive the reward. Faith, hope and love, three gifts from God, three evidences of his grace in our lives. But they all result in us doing something, working, labouring, perseverance in our walks with him. So, Paul, when talking about the impact of the gospel, he describes their identity, he describes their fruitfulness, and he describes their example. Verse 5. For our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. He starts off by saying to the Thessalonians, you saw how we were. That's really important. If we're proclaiming the gospel, not in word only, but in power, the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, then our lives must stack up with that. And Paul's did. They saw how he was, And then in verse 6, and they also became imitators of us and the Lord. (laughs) So the example that Paul brought or lived out when he was preaching the gospel resulted in the Thessalonians imitating. Imitating Paul and imitating Jesus. Even when it came in the midst of trouble, 
That doesn't matter because he says you receive the word in tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they saw how Paul was, they imitated that, and then, verse 7, they became an example to all the believers, all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia, modern-day northern Greece, Achaia, modern-day southern Greece. It's quite a big area. Remember, these are baby Christians in a new church. And they're now an example to all the believers across the whole of a country. And he goes further. Verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Hang on a minute. That was big enough, wasn't it? To affect a whole country. But now he's saying, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything. That's a phrase that comes up a few more times in 1 Thessalonians. So hang on, they hear the word, they respond to it, they start to live lives which look like Jesus, they're following the example of Paul and his companions, that example is then an example to other believers across a whole country and now across a whole region. Let me talk about this road, just a reminder on the next map of where Thessalonica is, so pretty much right there in the middle, in Greece. And then the next map, if you can see that, shows you a red road tracking across the middle of Greece and into Turkey. That's called the Ignatian Way. And it was a Roman road that they built. And you can see that Thessalonica sits on that road. And that was a main trade route because basically you can see on the left-hand side of the map in the east, there's Byzantium, that's modern-day Istanbul, roughly. So from there, it tracks right across northern Greece or through the middle of Greece to the coast on the Adriatic. And then they would take a ship across there, land at Brindisi in southern Italy, and then travel up the Appian Way to Rome. Basically, that road joins Rome to Byzantium. That was a pretty important route. In fact, it was the major trade route, world route on land. And Thessalonica is right on that road. So when I said at the start that people were kind of coming in and out of this city along this road, that's why. Anyone who was anyone traveling along that road had to stop at Thessalonica. And you wanted to stop in the cities. You didn't want to camp out at the side of the road. But not only is there this road, but there's this port, which has very, very good natural conditions, a deep harbour, and therefore open access from the Aegean drifts down into the Mediterranean. And so in quite an easy journey, really, you can kind of be in good trading waters. And so you can imagine how if something happens in Thessalonica, word is going to spread very easily along these trading routes. And so when Paul says the word of God sounded forth from you, well, it would, wouldn't it? God's invaded in this city, turned the city upside down. There's been a huge mob riot there. 
Paul and his companions are kicked out of town. Jason is posted on, out on bail. The church is going great guns and the word spreads. It's got to. And you know what happens when word spreads? Well, they travel along to say, I don't know, Philippi, which is a bit further along to the east. And the people in Philippi who are going the other way go, oh, I better check that out when I get to Thessalonica. They check it out, find it's true, and they carry the word the other way. And so it spreads. The word of the God, were the word of God spreading. And so Jubilee Church, centred as we are at the centre of the country, motorway networks everywhere. I travel a lot in my work. It's very easy to get anywhere in the UK from here. The word of God will sound forth, will sound forth from us. So Paul describes their fruitful lives, their example, their identity as results of the gospel coming. Which is all very well, but what is this gospel? (laughs) So I just want to finish by spending a couple of minutes thinking about the centre of the gospel, which Paul helpfully summarises for us. So in verse 9, he says, You turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You see, in this in this mix of of influences that was Thessalonica, various religions, various people coming from here, there and everywhere. There would have been all sorts of religions on display, all sorts of idols, all sorts of religious practices. If you wanted to believe something, you'd probably find someone else who would believe it with you type thing. And if not, start up your own religion. Why not? But there was such a clear change when the gospel came in word, in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction that these people abandoned their idols. They turned from their idols to serve a living and true God. And the contrast that Paul puts here is very stark. On the one hand, you've got idols. And on the other hand, you've got living and true God. So the implication is the idols were not living and the idols were not true. Now, when I was at university, there was a landlord who owned a number of different houses that some of my friends owned. And uh, the the landlord was a Sikh guy who was asking genuine questions about um, Christianity of my friends. And uh, they reported one conversation which went along the lines of them describing Jesus and him being extremely happy with the idea of Jesus being added to his other gods. Sad, isn't it? Because actually the claims of Jesus are for exclusivity. It's him and him alone. Because truth and falsehood don't mix. So you can't have Jesus, the truth, placed alongside idols that are not the truth. It doesn't work. It's not what it means to be transformed by the gospel. It's not what it means to turn from, to God from idols. There's a change of heart. And for us, I think it's very easy to imagine all the idolatry that must have been in this city, you know, various bits and pieces of different religions. And very easy for us to be blind to our own idols, which could be basically 
anything, anything can be an idol. Anything. Because what takes an idol from being just a thing to an idol is that you trust in it more than you trust in God. That that's what you look to for fulfillment and security. That that's what you would chase after at the expense of all else. And so it could be a promotion at work. It could be success in your job. It could be a happy family. It could be having kids. It could be your marriage. It could be having a muscular body. (laughs) (laughs) But basically it's anything that to you can offer that promise of security. And we've got to watch out for them and root them out. It's not that any of those things in and of themselves is wrong, but it's when it dominates and becomes the source of our satisfaction and fulfillment or security. We need to turn from them. We need to turn from them. The only thing that is worth serving is the living and true God. But then Paul goes on. Sorry, it just keeps on going on and on in this chapter. We're nearly there, verse 10. You turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son. Uh, You know that hope that they were persevering with? This is the hope. And this is another big theme in 1 Thessalonians. You read the end of each chapter. It's about the coming of Jesus. Every single chapter, the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. And in a few weeks' time, Joe's going to do a, a master class on, on the, the big picture of the coming of Jesus. To wait for his son. And then there are four descriptions of this son. Firstly, he's from heaven. Oh, that is amazing. If the son's not from heaven, then the son's no one. The son has to be from heaven. This is the divine son of God. That is good news that we're waiting for this son. Where from? From heaven. He will return. He will return. And given that the Thessalonians already know that they are siblings in the household of the father, then that means their brother is coming back for them. The son, he will return from heaven. But not only will he come from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Not only is the son divine, but he's alive. I thought I would get more of an excited response. But um, there we are. We can work on that. We've got a while till Easter. But the son was dead and death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. Thank you. Death couldn't hold him. And so this son that we're waiting for from heaven is alive, is alive. And then he's named. What a precious name this is. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus. Jesus, precious name above all names. God who, who loved the world that he created in perfection, So loved it that he sent Jesus to save us from our sins. What were we just singing? As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. 
the compassion of the Father. Jesus, Saviour, is what it means. He's the one the Thessalonians are waiting for. He's the one we're waiting for. But there's even more than that. Not only is he divine and alive and the Saviour, but he's the rescuer who rescues us from the wrath to come. Not just a saviour, but a rescuer. He plucks us from the jaws of hell and places us in the hand of the Father. And as we'll see through the letter, Paul makes this very clear distinction between those who are going to suffer wrath and those who are saved, rescued from the wrath of God. And basically it hinges on the response to the gospel. And for those who accept the Son is the rescuer, they are rescued. That's it. It's God's work in us. So that's the start of 1 Thessalonians. There's quite a lot in there. And I think it would be good if we worshipped this one that we are waiting for from heaven, who is alive, who is the Son and who is the rescuer. So if I could have the band back and we could stand, that'd be good. And just while they're setting up, I'll pray for us. Our Father, we love your word. We love the fact that your word comes and transforms our lives. Father, we thank you for the fruit that all we need to do is glance around this room and we see the fruit, the evidence of your grace in people's lives. Father, we thank you for that. And we thank you for our great hope that is you, your return, your return from heaven, your return from heaven alive, your return from heaven as the alive saviour and rescuer who rescues us from all the things which we have done that are not in line with your will. Father, we thank you. We thank you. And God, we just come to you and worship now. We worship you, the saviour of our hearts.